I've already told you this is a black chapter. You're going to see it in some of the details. But there is a, a powerful phrase that I think politicians and historians and certainly teachers and pastors like myself would say, all it takes for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. This chapter, I believe, is going to be a fuel for you and I to take the action on what it means in our day to serve God, to honor Him, and to seek His way above our own. Because what we see within this chapter is individuals, although several start out well, they do not end well, they do not continue uh, to walk in the way that God has set before them. So in this passage of scripture, as we start, I want you to notice that Gideon left a tremendous legacy, a powerfully compelling legacy for his family and for his nation to follow. Spencer was teaching on this the last couple of weeks, and we realized that he was a man maybe that we can identify most easily with because he was nervous about leading. He was uncertain about leading. He wasn't sure God would do what it was God was asking him to do, and there was a lot of risk involved in this. His whole life, maybe the life of his family, the extended family, and maybe there would be great difficulty, disappointment, failure if what God asked him to do didn't happen. So I want to remind you, he was a man who believed God despite a nervous start. And the big challenge for us is, are we willing to believe God in our day to lead us in the way he's promised when we find confusion and difficulty and challenge? Will we trust him? Secondly, he was a man who acted courageously despite his poor self-assessment. He said at one point, I am the smallest of the smallest tribe. Now, Manasseh, physically, in terms of population, wasn't the smallest, but what he was saying is, look, I don't come from a people that have much to show for. You know, we're, we're a little people. We haven't really done great things. There haven't been any judges come out of Manasseh. Who am I? I'm the littlest in my father's house, you know. He just gave all kinds of reasons to persuade God that he should find a better guy. I don't know about you, but I think that's a common experience in the family of God. You know, it was, it was certainly Moses when he said to God, here am I, send Aaron. You know, I, I'm, look, I, I stutter when I speak. What are you asking me to do? He had all kinds of reasons God shouldn't use him. So did Gideon. So do you and I. Until we see the face of God clearly. That it's really not about our ability. It's about our obedience. If we trust him and follow we let him do the rest. He does the heavy lifting. It isn't that we don't have to show up and do difficult things, but it is that we leave the results to him. Thirdly, Gideon was a man of integrity. When offered the role of being the first king of Israel, he declined with these powerful words that you heard read. I will not rule over you. I won't do it. And my son won't rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, that's a fantastic statement. The problem is he didn't follow it in the next verse. You know what he did? He said, well, I have one request. And his first request was to do what a king does, taxes. Right? Give me tribute. I'll tell you what. I won't make it excessive. Just give me one earring from every Midianite you killed. Because their trend was not tattoos. Their trend was to wear gold earrings. Oh, right. We wear both those things as men in our culture, don't we? 
You know what I'm saying. I'm not mocking. I'm saying it was a cultural trend. They demonstrated their identity by the gold rings they wore in their ears. He said, I'll just take one apiece. Thank you very much. Well, if you do the math, 1,700 shekels of gold was somewhere between 50 and 70 pounds. Not bad take, right? But then there was added onto that all of the uh, ornaments of the kings of the Midians, there were two of them, and then all of the gold that was on their camels because they were displayed to demonstrate they were kings and powerful. So here he is, he packs it off back to Oprah or Ophrah, and what does he do with it? Well, one of the things he does is he makes a golden ephod. What was a golden ephod? It was what the high priest was to wear on the front of his linen garments when he was going in before God, and he would put the ermim and the thummim in, which was, nobody really knows, but I'm going to say a black and a white rock. And when you were inquiring of God, the priest would reach into the ephod and pull out the stone, and that was your answer. So it was a way of talking to God. Now, you know that Gideon was phenomenal at talking to God and God to him and really exercising all of this. You know the story. You've heard it. He made a golden ephod, and what happened? Well, uh, Ophrah became the center because people came to worship the ephod. It became a snare, meaning what? They served an idol instead of the God who was the one who gave answer. Started well. Great statement of integrity didn't follow through. So here's what I want to say happened next is that then Gideon allowed pleasure and luxury to divide his heart. Well, all of that gold did what for him? Well, it gave him a beautiful house. It gave him a palace, if you would. And not only did it give him a palace, but now he could afford a harem because he could pay the dowries to all the women he wanted to bring into his home. And it says that not only was he so successful at this, that he actually sired 70 sons. Now, we hope that wasn't by two wives. Oh, yeah, that was worth a little giggle, right? So he married multiple, multiple women. And that wasn't enough for Gideon. You read more of the story, you discover that there was a rather attractive servant girl in the house. And he looked at her and said, I would really like her, but the problem was, if you go into the background, she actually came from a place called Shechem, outside of Oprah, or Ophrah, and it was known to be a Canaanite center. Likely what it means is she was a servant because she didn't have stature in the house, could even have been a slave. He gave her a proper wedding, but couldn't introduce her as a wife, so they had a concubine relationship. Formal wedding, formal relationship, but the children born from the relationship would not be heirs. So what's the point? Well, the point is Abimelech, an interesting name, Two words, Abi or Abba, we would say God, Abba, Father. Abba in Hebrew meaning uh, uh, father, and Melech means king. Put them together, father, king, meaning my dad's the king. So no, I won't be the king, but I'm going to call this kid my dad's the king. That's what Abimelech means. It was not an uncommon name. It's used by a few other characters. So what is the point? I'm saying that Gideon did not set up his family to do well. He started well, gave them this exemplary uh, legacy of his obedience to God at the beginning. 
But Abimelech chose to put himself above serving his God, his father. And Abimelech did this because I want to suggest that he was bitter. Now, I'm not saying Gideon caused the bitterness. I am saying that Gideon wasn't thinking of the influence his behavior had on his children. He was just thinking about himself. One more wife, thank you very much. Added the prize to his harem and really didn't think what it would be like for a boy to grow up watching 70 sons who were like princes and he knew he would never be at the table. Now, he was literally at the food table. He was certainly raised, he was provided for, he was given that place within the house, but he knew he would never be an heir. He would never rise to prominence. He would never be significant. He was the son of a concubine. So what would it be like to be on the outside, always looking in? You understand how powerful this is. Because some of you come from situations that are not unlike that. And I don't mean that necessarily this was, you know, that you were the product of a polygamous family. I'm saying that you were the product of a family that didn't really think about how they were setting you up. And you may, because of your circumstances and your experiences, be a person who's on the outside looking in instead of on the inside looking out. You understand what I'm saying? You're there, but you don't fit. You don't belong. And there have been so many ways of telling you that. What can happen to the heart that's in that experience? Well, one example of that, and I'm not saying it had to be that way, I'm saying it was that way for Abimelech, was that he nurtured a hunger for more and for better. And it didn't work out well for him as we read the story because Abimelech shows his self-serving choices by murdering all of his brothers and doing so by dragging them to the same stone and killing them all there. I mean, it's graphic in its detail and horrific when you consider what he did to his own family and felt justified in it. Now, what he does before that is he goes to Shechem, and he actually plants this whole story. It's a fascinating account. I would encourage you to read it for yourself. But he goes to his mother's family in Shechem and says, now, what would be better for you? If 70 rule over you, obviously then this was a family of significant leadership in Israel. Would it be better if all of them ruled over you, or would it be better if... If I, who am a son of Gideon, but belong to you, your family. Think about it. And the people at Shechem went, he's got a point. And his family really talked it up. And finally, they came to him and said, okay, what do you want? And he said, I, I want 70 pieces of silver, and I want you to make me the king. So what he did then is he took 70 pieces of silver from their temple. What was their temple? To God? No, it was to Baal Barit. And Baal was the Canaanite god. This was a Canaanite city, deeply influenced in people belonging to that group that were to have been purged and pushed out of Israel. They were tolerated and now are a snare. And they become like them. And Baal Barit means, Barit means to break, it, it actually means to covenant, to, to promise. And if you put it together, they said this is the God who gives us what we want, who, who promises us. Well, that's name it and claim it theology, isn't it? 
I'll serve the God who gives me what I want. I'll serve the God who makes me rich. I'll serve the God who looks after me. Took the 70 pieces of silver, hired a band of worthless men. It says they were bandits. They were robbers. They were murderers. They were criminals. And off they went, surrounded the house, killed every last son, or so they thought. One escaped. His name was Jotham. And he went up to a mountain area where his voice would be projected and he could be hidden. And he told a story of all the trees deciding who would be their king. And the only one that was willing to do it was the bramble. And then he has this very interesting line that says, Come and sit in my shade, because if you don't, fire will come from me and will destroy you all. And if trees fear anything, it's fire, right? They're wood, they burn. God's at work in this. We don't see this immediately. We read it a little bit later, but here's the backstory. As soon as Gideon died, the people turned again, and it says they prostituted themselves or whored after the Baals and made Baal Berit, the God of promise, their God. They didn't remember God, and they didn't remember Gideon. What I'm saying is we need to recognize those who have come before us who have given us the advantage we currently possess. And we have a lot of that in Canada. We've got courts that work well. We have schools that educate powerfully. Universities and colleges. We have institutions among us that care for the vulnerable and the poor. I'm not suggesting there isn't room for improvement or more, but I'm saying pretty great history that has advanced us to where we are in terms of what's been achieved. Great need for us as we even talk today to understand where some of those things need to be corrected that were done in the past. But let's not lose sight of those who have served us well in our history and honor those to whom honor is due. Because in this nation at this time, they forgot all about Gideon's accomplishment failed to honor his family, and failed to honor his God. Why? Well, it says at the beginning of, of, of Judges, and will be repeated, everyone does what's right in their own eyes because there's no leadership they follow. Make it up as they go. All of this is working within the culture and the society in a way that is undermining the nation. So they crown Abimelech, the murderer, their king. He's in Shechem. Uh, it, it, it's a bit of a disaster for Israel, but we recognize that he's continuing to demonstrate his force and his power. And so we have this uh, story of Jotham, but as we move forward in the story, we have a little bit of foreshadowing that occurs, and that was read for us. I just want to remind you of it. It's in verse 22, that a short time into his rule, Abimelech had governed Israel for three years. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem, and they acted treacherously against Abimelech. What does that mean? Well, I think they were sitting around... Uh, chatting it up and saying, you know what, we could do better than this Abimelech. You know, really, look at his, his progeny, his legacy. He's not really that great. Why do we need him? We ought to really look at the people that we've come from, Horam, which is a Canaanite name, and we should pick one from them. 
what they don't understand is that God's at work in this, moving powerfully to bring them to the seat of judgment and justice. Israel doesn't know it. Abimelech doesn't know it. I think Jotham, who told the story, isn't certain about it. And sometimes you and I live in that in-between stage, don't we? We have a cry for justice. God, how long will you put up with this? When would you bring relief? When will you bring change? When will you do something about this? It's the cry of our heart for justice. But what transpires is that Shechem first puts all these robbers on the high points, which is making a mess in Israel, and Abimelech decides he has to go after them, so they go through a whole bunch of strategic plans, and in the end, they lay wait for the village or the city. Actually, it's a walled city, and the people come out, and they kill a bunch of them, and then a whole bunch more run back into the city, and they run into a tall tower that's there. Actually, it's not in the city. It's outside the city in the temple, and there's a big tower, and the people run in, and they barricade the doors, and they're all in this big square tower, about a 1,000 people. And Abimelech has an idea, and he gathers wood, and they put it all around the tower, and he says to all of his army, do the same, and they light the thing on fire, and they burn the whole place down. Uh, horrific, right? Uh, I mean, I, I, I think it's Kitchener that was the scorched earth policy, right, down in South Africa, and destroyed so many people, similar tactic, and became, in the eyes of everyone, criminal for the atrocities he did against everyone, so Abimelech. And then he decides to move on the next city that hasn't really accepted his power called Thebes, and he goes to that place. Well, what worked in Shechem will work here because they do the same, barricade themselves in a tower, and he goes to repeat it. But what he doesn't pay attention to is there's a woman on the top who has a grinding mill. I think there's a picture I have of it here in the slides. It's a, it's a fairly heavy stone, but a woman can lift it and put it in place, puts the, 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 the grain in and then turns it around and out comes the flour, grinds it uh, so she can make bread, etc. and takes one of those things and, oh, there's Abimelech, drops it on his head and crushes his skull. Now, brutal, right? Uh, but a rather definite victory. And, of course, you know the culture of this time it, it, it doesn't have a high view of women, certainly not in leadership or in warrior status. And so he says to his armor bearer, I mean, how he has the presence of mind to do it, but he knows he's dying, and he says, kill me, I don't want a woman to kill me, but of course the, the text stands, the woman killed him. It was just the armor bearer that put him out of his misery. And Abimelech is gone. It's a gruesome story on family day. But, but, but there's a couple of points here that we as family members need to take to heart. Because we do read in verse 56 onward uh, that this all happens, and then it says in verse 56 at the end of the chapter, thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness, and the curse of Jotham, son of Zerubbabel, came upon them. They were burned with fire. The bramble destroyed them. Uh, one commentator called this the bramble king, that he brought rack and ruin upon those that were defying God. 
But, but here's what I want you to see, that as we look at this passage and apply it in our own lives, imagine what would have happened if Gideon had set Abimelech up for success. Imagine what would have happened if Abimelech, if not even given that option, had decided that he was a man who was going to serve the true father, the king of heaven, instead of himself. Imagine the rack and ruin that wouldn't be written, the nation that wouldn't have been put through all of this distress and war, all of this pillage, all of these people losing their lives, if individuals had decided that they should serve the God of heaven. I want to suggest that one of the things that the church does within any society that will tolerate it is it rewrites the history of all those who serve God to that which honors God instead of that which denies him. Incredible power in the lives of those families. You see, the story of our generations right now has not been fully written. For those who leave God out, defy him, deny him, and attempt to live by their own values, ignoring his, we're told here in a foreshadowing, there's going to come a day of reckoning, a day of justice, a day of judgment. Now, there's no joy for us in announcing that as a Christian community. You know, we don't want to be sitting in the bleachers and saying, oh, God, go get him. That's not the song of the Christian. As we cry out to God for justice and mercy, we say to God, oh, God, have mercy to those who don't deserve it because I was once among them. And what you've done for me, you can do for them. Oh, God, do it again. Bring those who do not know you to love you. That's the cry of the church. It's grace. So as we close the chapter on the life of a bitter man who was willing to kill all of his family to gain what he wanted is warning, encouragement, and sober reflection. Friends, I think if we follow Gideon and, and see this at the beginning, we need to determine that we would use whatever God places in our hands for his glory and not for our selfish pursuits. Our physical bodies, our resource of time, our skill, our financial gain, all gifts. For those who follow Christ to be surrendered for his glory, to be used for him. And I say this because, you know, it is my opinion as we age that not every person who ages within grace ends well. We have to fight the fight until the Lord takes us home. What fight? The fight against that inclination to serve ourselves and not the Lord who loved us. Let's not sit in luxury. Let us be those who rise up and serve. Each of us is responsible for our own hearts. Abimelech nursed a wounded heart unnecessarily. He was born into a family like many others, but he chose to make a decision for himself and not for the betterment of his family, certainly not for his nation, and not for the Lord. So what counts, friends, is that we decide in our hearts whom we are going to serve. 
Because listen, also, God is not waiting for us to use what we have in terms of resources. He's really waiting for us as a people to love him, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because if he has that, he has your resources. All of you for all of him. The New Testament has a comment that it says this. It's in, found in the book of Hebrews. It's going to be on the slide on our screen. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, peace and holiness come from right relationship with God. And then he writes, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And what does that mean? He, he defines it this way, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Hebrews 12, 14, he warns us, your heart cannot end your life. Focus it then on Christ. Don't fail to receive and appropriate the grace which will lead you to what? Peace insofar as possible with you, with all people who are around you. Had Abimelech looked to God instead of pursuing an outcome fueled by bitterness, imagine what good he could have done instead of what is written of him. Oh, so much would have been unwritten. I'm not suggesting in doing this we earn our way. I'm simply suggesting that we would recognize the God who loved us and respond to that grace. So let me conclude by asking, who will be your father? Who will be the one that you look to for formation, for direction, for care, for consideration? Who is the one that will bind up your wounds? Who is the one that will lead you in a way of peace? Who is the one that will make your life and encourage you through your life? It needs to be the Lord. And how will you set up your own family? How will you reflect as to what you will do that enables them to live well? You can't determine their choices, but you certainly can lead them to a place where those choices become easier for them to make. How will you be a light to your Father in our dark world? Because that's what Jesus calls us in the New Testament. But you are light. Live as children of light. May we as his people today renew that covenant relationship with him. Not with a God called Baal Berit who gives us what we want, but a God who leads us in grace and love. That heaven will come to earth. That we will be an influence because we choose to do what God wants done, despite the cost, for his glory. Father, thank you for mercy and for grace. Thank you that this is a day in which we can turn to you. Thank you for provoking within this chapter not only an outcome that demonstrates you are the just judge, but causes us to reflect on how we can live differently, how we can live better, how we can make these choices before you on this day and every day to be a person who honors you in the context that you've placed us. Uh, we would pray that we would lean into grace so deeply 
and so completely that our first impulse is to seek your way above our own. And we ask it for your glory. We pray it for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.